Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about Victoria's press trip to Sicily, her CEO interviews, and a quiz on Gen Z lingo. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. New York City, home of New York City Jewelry Week, which uh, by the time people are listening to this will be just finished, but it is in the midst of a series of events. Are you doing anything for Jewelry Week? I don't know. How, how does one celebrate Jewelry Week? One attends one of the very, very many, many events. I am on track to lead a panel discussion on AI, artificial intelligence in the jewelry industry on Saturday. And it's taking place in Industry City, which is like an event maker's space in Brooklyn. It's a little bit of a schlep for Manhattanites, but I'm hoping it doesn't entirely turn people off to, to head to Brooklyn. And Matthew Tratner from Serene is going to be one of my panelists, and as is Casey Melvin, co-founder of thefutureofjewelry.com, which is a, a custom jewelry website where you can pretty much create rings, signet rings of your heart's desire using their their software. So former former podcast guest. Former podcast guest, exactly. So I'm super excited to talk to them about AI and I'll definitely be touching base uh, about this topic in the near future because it is so so interesting and very much present in the way the jewelry industry is handling its affairs. I'll, I'll, we can touch base more on that later, but not to talk entirely about AI. Anyway, the point is I, I will be in, I'm flying to New York tomorrow. I will have come and gone by the time people hear this, but I'm excited, excited to, to see, well, I don't know if I'll see you. Hopefully, Rob, hopefully we can. Yeah, maybe. You never know. I might pop up somewhere. You might just pop up somewhere as you do. And uh, you just got back what seems like a harrowing, terrible (laughs) trip to Italy. And I feel really bad you had to take one for the team and go to Italy. It was rough. Let me let me just set the scene. If anybody's watching the current season of White Lotus, which is it's in its second season, it's on HBO Max. And it's, uh, you know, the first season was set in Hawaii. And the second season is set in Sicily in the town of Taramina, which is where I spent 36 hours. I flew to Taramina for 36 hours care of Jacob and Company. And it was Jacob and Company's first press trip, first real press trip. Now, Jacob and Company, many people know Jacob the Jeweler, Jacob Araboff, or pardon me, Jacob Arabo, and then his son, Benjamin Araboff, who has a slightly different version of his last name, who's now running the company, his son, Ben, who's, they're, they're both lovely. I mean, I'd met Jacob before at Basel and didn't have much of a sense of him other than he kind of has a big warm personality and in fact he is quite warm and quite authentic and he turns out he's a huge lover of The Godfather the classic 1972 film which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year and they had I guess had license rights licensing rights through Paramount to license some of the imagery from the film and had made a few couple of watches in the past celebrating The Godfather and this year introduced quite a horological masterpiece I mean I have to sort of look to see how many functions it has it's a tourbillon a triple axis flying tourbillon costs half a million bucks and it actually plays the theme song from the movie has engravings all around its case that capture pivotal iconic scenes from the movie and this is what they were introducing in Sicily and so they flew out a bunch of editors and we just had a grand old time including visiting locations from the film 
film that were filmed in Sicily, including the church where Michael Corleone marries Apollonia, including the scene at Bar Vitelli where Michael Corleone sits down with Apollonia's father, including the scene where Apollonia is killed in the car that explodes. And it was very personal to me. I mean, maybe to a lot of people because The Godfather was my dad's favorite movie. In fact, he learned English reading The Godfather when we were still in the Soviet Union before we emigrated to the States. So when I got the invite, it just felt like you know, it felt like something I, my dad would have loved to have seen me go to. And I, I definitely, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. And it was just beautiful. Even though it was a very brief trip, it was still very worthwhile. So the watch itself is pretty spectacular. And I can think of no other watchmaker in the world who would attempt it, much less actually execute a watch this grand. And I met a collector there. There were a number of collectors on the trip. And, you know, he was wearing a previous version of the Godfather watch that Jacob and company had done, not quite as complicated. And let me tell you, I mean, the thing they say about these timepieces is just how they generate conversations. They're such conversation pieces. I mean, you know, a Patek Philippe, a Rolex will never start the kinds of conversations you get when you're wearing a Godfather watch from Jacob and company. So there is value there. They're obviously for the very, very elite. It's half a million dollars. So it's not going to be something you just pick up on a whim. What makes it a Godfather watch? Well, a lot, actually. So not only does it play the theme song to the movie, which is just so recognizable. It plays it, you just like tap a thing and it plays the theme song? Yeah, it's like a music box. You know, some watches have that ability. Like, I don't know if you tap it. I actually didn't engage with that function because they did have the watch out to see, but it was swarmed by all the press that were trying to get pictures of it. So I didn't get a lot of opportunities to like handle it. So the, the most interesting part of it was that they engraved 13 scenes from The Godfather, really key iconic scenes that if you're a fan of the movie, you'd recognize along the case using this really interesting laser technology. You know, you're looking at it and it's it's a pretty big watch. Obviously, it has to accommodate all this, but it's really quite amazing because they're... The- it's on the watch, not on the, the thing that holds it, on the actual watch. You can see scenes from The Godfather. They don't have rights to show the faces of any of the actors apart from Marlon Brando. So there is an image of Marlon Brando on the face of the watch. But along the case, they'll show iconic scenes, but in a way that you obscure some of the faces. But they're very realistically done. And so you it's easy to recognize. You wouldn't expect that that would be easy to do because it's obviously still a rather small canvas for these renditions. But the best part of this trip was so they had one actor from The Godfather who made it to Sicily to celebrate with Jacob. The character he plays is Carlo Rizzi. He is the son-in-law. He marries Connie Corleone and he's the He's the abuser. He's the abusive son-in-law. And he was played by an actor named Gianni Russo. And Gianni Russo is now somewhere around 82. He lives in New York. He's as clear and lucid as they come. And he just is the, I mean, what a character. This guy, if you just Google his name, he's apparently been at the intersection of every great historical episode in the last 50 years. JFK, Marilyn Monroe. I mean, he he boasted about doing shots of vodka with Putin over like Zoom or whatever. Some, this is like four years ago. I mean, this guy just, you couldn't tell what was real, what was not. He just told stories like few people I know. And wore his like red velvet smoking jacket and his little slippers all around. I mean, he was just a character in half and talked about how growing up in Mulberry Street in Little Italy in New York, he knew one of the gangsters that had to give his blessing for the Godfather to be made because apparently there was, you know, a ruckus in the Italian-American community when Coppola was trying to film it because they were worried it was going to cast Italian-Americans in a bad light. And so he had to get, you know, local mobsters to sort of sign off on it and agree to have their unions work with the production team. And that's how 
Gianni Russo got his part. Anyway, a lot of arcane trivia here for Godfather fans, but just suffice to say it was a brilliant 36 hours. But, you know, Jacob and Company is an interesting brand. Right, and he's building this big tower, I guess, the considered the largest residential tower in the world in Dubai. Well, yeah, so tell, tell us about that because I that did not come up at all. It was probably still under wraps when I was in Sicily with them. So what did what did you find out? Because I, I saw that headline and was like, what? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I think it's actually interesting and it's something we talked about, I think, a couple podcasts ago is a few jewelry brands are getting into, you know, building hotels and now in this case, building a building. And I think uh, De Grisogano, the, the people who bought the rights to the name of De Grisogano are building buildings that are branded with that branding on it. So it's kind of an interesting mix of real estate and jewelry. And in this case, Jacob is going with this big Dubai developer to build what is projected to be the largest residential tower in the world and it's going to be ultra luxury and i was very amused at the amenities you could choose from they said you could get childcare, which i understand but you know you could also get uh bodyguards right so if you <laughs> have bodyguards on demand so yeah it seems like it's wild and apparently some of the suites are patterned after jacob's watches so it's it seems like ultra luxury taken to the nth degree wow i mean that is pretty amazing i I guess it's it it does sort of feed into this next topic that I want to discuss, which is just the growing power of brand names, and especially in the jewelry sphere, where for most of time, you know, jewelry was was sold generically, was sold by local regional players, perhaps small chains or mom and pop stores. That's where most people bought their jewelry until about you know the last 10, 20 years, and. You know, 10 years ago, I spoke to a Bain consultant. She said about 15 to 20% of the jewelry market was branded jewelry in 2011. And here we are now, and it's closer to 25 to 30%. Yeah, and actually, you know, it's interesting when in De Beers' uh, latest survey, they found a very large percentage of especially younger consumers were buying what they considered to be branded diamonds. Hmm. And the term is pretty open. You know, people have different concepts of what an actual brand is. So it could be something from including a local retailer or it could be a, a national retailer, but brands have huge power now in, in jewelry. Yeah, well, certainly. And and so I, for this, an article that should be running about the time people are listening to this podcast in the Times, I spoke to the CEOs of Bulgari, Pomolato, Tiffany and Company, and did a lot of research around what the next decade looks like for these high jewelers or these branded jewelers at, at the high end. I'm, I wasn't talking to the Pandoras of the world, but I was talking to the Tiffany's of the world. And let me tell you, you know, 2023 might look a little nerve wracking for your average folk like us as we think about inflation and war and potentially recession and all the other complicated factors that feed into our day to days. The jewelry brands that I spoke to, I mean, really optimism has never been higher. They are expanding factories, opening factories, renovating stores, banking on brick and mortar in a way that I found fascinating that there really is this keen focus on elevating the retail experience. You know, the Tiffany flagship reopening 
sometime in 23, I think spring, it's been pushed back a bit, but you know, there will be the way that Anthony Drew, the chief executive described it was it would be like a movie theater, like a real experiential space. You know, there's a cafe, there's a high jewelry workshop, there's clearly the traditional retail environment, but it's fascinating how, how much optimism there is in that sphere among the CEOs. And I'd mentioned when I spoke to um, Jean-Christophe Babin, the CEO of Bulgari, that he was in the Maldives scouting out a hotel property or, or checking in on the progress of their latest Bulgari resort in the Maldives and how that extension of their brand name to the hospitality space. And as you mentioned with Jacob and Company to a real estate environment. I mean, those brand names, obviously they carry weight. People trust them, especially when they're buying things like jewelry, where there's still so much esoteric information and you are maybe, you know, worried about the quality of your stones. And I guess those brand names stand for for trust and value. And generally you can count on buying the thing you think you're buying and this is what they're banking on. So it was pretty fascinating to hear how well that category is doing and how much they're projecting to grow. But a lot of it, a lot of their growth seems to be based on really the high jewelry space, anything above 75000 at retail. So again, that customer, that affluent customer base, you know, the richer getting richer. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now back to the show. And when they talk about where they see opportunities, is it in the United States or are they also looking at China and India and some of these emerging markets. I guess I, I don't know if I would even consider China an emerging market. It's pretty much here, but right. Um, it, it's definitely global. I mean, there. I think Seoul, Korea, is a very promising market in Asia. China is still very promising, but clearly has had uh, isn't growing at the pace that the other markets are growing, including the U.S. because of their zero COVID policy. But the Middle East. I mean, Brazil, Tiffany's uh, CEO mentioned expanding to e-commerce in Brazil, a market that they have not strangely already tapped for e-com, but it's a massive market. And they, they have a flagship, I think, being renovated and large, so on in Sao Paulo. Things are happening all over the world, but the U.S. is still an incredibly vibrant and very, uh, there's a lot of potential here. And if you look to the watch brands, you know, Lang Son, a Lang Son, the very high-end prestige Watchmaker from Germany just uh, inaugurated a Boston boutique. There are, you know, Aspen boutiques for Hublot, all these smaller tier cities that have a high concentration of wealth, but haven't really figured into the retail plans of a lot of these brands in the past now are suddenly posing great opportunities for people. So I think the U.S. is still probably their number one market in terms of prospects and growth. But Korea, huge, other parts of Southeast Asia, even Europe. From a conversation I had with another Bain consultant just yesterday, strong growth. A lot of Americans heading to Europe, you know, over the summer, finally flexing their travel muscles, getting back in there and buying a lot of luxuries while they're at it. I remember the final Tiffany CEO before it was purchased by LVMH talked a lot about the new luxury consumer and he talked about trying to make luxury accessible, but at the same time, it has to stay luxury. And one of the things LVMH, it seems, has tried to do is very much elevate the brand. So, you know, you're making it perhaps a little less accessible than it was in the past. And, you know, it seems that there's always that tension, right? You know, at some point you max out among the luxury consumers and you want to appeal to a broader audience. Did those ideas come up? 
Well, it did come up and it very much, you you hit the nail on the head when you said elevate. That actual word came up several times in my conversation with Mr. LeDrew. And even with the silver, they haven't really put a focus on silver in the almost two years since LVMH acquired the brand, but they will be revisiting it. It sounds like but still the idea is it will be an elevated offer. So even their, I guess their entry, I suppose, will still be higher than I anticipate what it was. But I think the idea is that they're, everything's just going up. Did they talk about social responsibility at all? No, I. but I didn't ask. I guess because that, that conversation feels like it's full of sort of, I mean, I know Tiffany does things pretty above board. I I wouldn't question any of those brands, frankly. But when you ask those questions, they tend to be pretty sort of press releasey kind of answers, you know? It's rare that you get a real on the record grappling with some of the nuances of what it means to be a responsible company. And in fact, I did just do a story on transparency in the watch trade. And for all these companies talk of how transparent they are, you know, I called 12 watchmakers at the high end, including Cartier, including Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe, Rolex, all the biggies. And one came back and answered my questions. Most of them either didn't respond, declined to answer, or answered with off-the-record statements, which sort of proves the point, right? Like all this talk about transparency and the industry remains incredibly opaque. But not for long, because there is legislation in Europe, at least, that will force companies to grapple with their supply chains, to document them, to to name names, to talk about suppliers, to talk about routes to market. So change is happening. And I think a lot of these companies will be very will be made very uncomfortable by it. A lot of them claim that it's, you know, part of their security protocols to not name their, you know, the source of their gold or the places where it's refined. And I'm thinking, how does that even make sense? Like, how does naming your refinery keep people safe? I mean, these refineries are out in the world. They're massive enterprises, mostly in Switzerland. It felt like a kind of a throwaway answer to a more serious question, which is just, why are you so opaque? These rationales that you've relied on for a long time just don't add up. Okay. You want to talk about Gen Z? I do. I do want to talk about it because so much of this is tied to Gen Z. These concepts of openness and transparency and traceability and trackability and all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's well, at least we hear. I mean, the last time we had that Gen Z, Ziad Ahmed, who was just such an interesting guy to have on our podcast, it, you know, it did sound like Gen Z cares. What what did you learn about Gen Z and, and where did you learn it? So I went to this Women's Jewelry Association, WJA event sponsored by Citizen and watch has done, I guess, a lot of research and out and outreach to Gen Z. So they had a lot of survey data, and they've certainly spent a lot of time looking at Gen Z. I thought, you know, it was an interesting presentation. A lot of it was very similar to some of the things you hear about millennials, but there were there were certain differences. I mean, you you definitely hear that people want brands that comport with their values, which is something you hear a lot. But then again, and you know, people are worried about the climate crisis and they're worried about the environment and what kind of future they're going to have and they're going to leave to future generations. And I think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I think a part of that is due to expanded consumer choice in that right now you can buy virtually anything in the world. So if you're going to buy a kind of jewelry or something else, you have so many choices, you might as well buy it at a place that you feel comports with your values and kind of shares a similar vision of what the world uh, should be like and look like. But of course, in in, in circumstances where you don't have choice, you just do what you have to do. So, you know, a lot of these Generation Z are 
on TikTok or Instagram. And, you know, I doubt those companies, you know, comport with their values or they may use Amazon and, you know, everybody uses Amazon and, you know, it doesn't necessarily comport with their values. And unless your values are about wrecking small business and knocking everybody else out of business. So, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's an interesting trend. One thing that I found was interesting is Gen Z is very big on mental health and they respond very well to campaigns that talk about mental health. I'm trying to phrase this in a delicate way, but at least the two Gen Zers on the panel seemed I'm trying to be nice about this, but sometimes millennials come off as a bit strident sometimes. And they so they were millennials or they were Gen Z? Millennials. The millennials come across that way. And the okay. Gen Zers did not. I don't mm-hmm. know if you agree with that, but maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know. I'll let Natalie, the millennial, decide. Okay. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, no, they seem they seem they seem very nice. They seem very open, very interested. You know, I, I guess the idea is that they want to be part of the brand. They want to feel a personal connection to the brand. They like brands that communicate with them, whether it be by social media, you know, they're watching the brands very closely because they do have this expanded consumer choice. I mean, it's not like when I graduated uh, high school, there was like three jewelers in town and, you know, they would all offer you the same thing, basically. And now it's not like that anymore. So that's really what they're they're looking for. And they just seem very interested and open. And they, they also gave out this uh, book, Generation Z Graduates to Adulthood, and has this Gen Z glossary. Hmm. Okay. So of of Gen Z terms, I thought I would quiz you on some of these terms. See if okay. you if you know them. See just how cool you are, Victoria Gamelski. Okay. Uh oh, I'm worried. I, I don't. Think how in tune are you with the kids? Hit me. Okay. Do you know what chuggy means? Oh my god, I so know what chuggy means. Oh really? Wow. Yes. All right. There you go. Hilarious. What, um, what I, does chuggy mean? It, it's like I more have a vision of it in my head, but it's kind of a little bit. I would call it a little homespun cheesiness. It's like a kind of a. It's a bit basic. I don't know. I really don't know that I can define it, but I know it when I see it. It's like when you walk into basic is home. in this thing too. By the way, is in. The, oh well, yeah. Ba- yeah. Basic, I know too. There you go. Um, it's, I guess it's a little cliche. It's like when you walk in, I, I think about stuff you might see at your local TJ Maxx. You walk in, it's like a sign in someone's house that says, it's wine o'clock. And it's written in this kind of cursive font that feels a little dated. I don't know if that connects with anything you're reading, but what does chuggy mean by the book? Uh, no, I think it's, I think you have a pretty good sense of uh, chugginess. <laughs> Here's a definition in this book. Lifestyle trends associated with early 2010s, the opposite of trendy. <laughs> there we go. How about draking? Do you know what draking is? No idea. Is it is it tied to Drake, the, the musical star? So yeah, so I, I looked it up. We were thinking, this is how out of touch Susan and I, we were hoping it would be uh, Nick Drake, the, <laughs> the, the star who died tragically young. And uh, anyway, it means it's either... About Drake or some guy named Drake. That was the two explanations I read. Anyway, um, it says feeling emotional or sad. Hmm. It's kind of like I'm bumming or I'm draking. Wow. That's new to me. I mean. Here's my favorite one, okay? Mm-hmm. This is, I, th- I think this is a, this one is clever. Cuffing. Cuffing. It sounds like something that could be kinky, but I'm guessing it's not. I don't know what it is. Getting into a relationship. Hmm. As in dating? I'm cuffed. 
I'm committed. I'm cuffed. I think that's a good one, right? Yeah, I guess it's funny. It has like a little bit of an, a jewelry evocation, you know, like you've got this bangle on your hand that's tied to somebody else's. Yes. Interesting. A, but yeah, I think that's a good one, right? Yeah, I like that one too. But I'm, yes, I'm going to use that now all the time. <laughs> uh, Gucci. I mean, you know what Gucci is, but what does it mean? That, that person is Gucci. Well, I... I have a sense of what that means. I mean, is it just like flamboyant, you know, over the top, luxe? That would be what Gucci would signify in my space. Yeah, Gucci, Gucci means doing well. Oh. And uh, do you know what guap? Guap, as in guapo, like handsome? Uh, it means a significant amount of money. Where do you think that comes from? I don't know. Maybe it comes from guapo. So that's not, that's not bad. That's one out of five you got. No, that's not bad at all. That's, yeah, that's, I think that's I mean, good, I, man. I think Chugi was my... I think women basic. Well, that's pretty fascinating. I guess um, it looks like uh, we might we might be down to our last couple minutes here. But yeah, I don't know that I'll ever use these words. And I mean, Chugi, funny enough, we, we've talked about because we just think it's such a hilarious concept. So uh, and, and actually, that was one of the interesting points on the panel was uh, I, I guess there was this run of brands using Chugi in their communications or tweeting it or, hey, this is we don't want to be Chugi or, you know, just kind of dropping the term Chugi. Yeah. They said, uh, the panelists said that was a turnoff, that it, se- it seemed inauthentic, like trying too hard. So in a way, like Chugi itself, using Chugi is kind of a form of Chuginess, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's like, a, it's not exactly a compliment, right? So I would just, it just sounds like forced to, it's not something, I only use it when we talk about, like, we just were all amazed because I was like, hey, this was to my friends. I was like, have you heard this word Chugi? And we all know what it means because when you start describing it and you all know people who have decor like this yeah it's just pretty funny but yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't use it in a campaign i mean the thing about gen z i mean it's very much an emerging generation so the youngest members of gen z are like 10 11 you know we still don't know you know what they will be like but it seemed really interesting and it's obviously brands have spent a lot of time getting in tune with millennials and for a lot of them it's been a real problem to kind of reinvent themselves to appeal to millennials and now here comes gen z here comes gen z well now that we know how to talk like them you remember draking now i've spaced entirely it means you're sad you're okay well i hope you don't spend the rest of the day draking rob that sounds so awkward nick drake or drake the star be guap and gucci and yeah let's let's go guap it up and (laughs) she's so awkward all right i won't be speaking this way all the best rob i hope to see you all right take care see you soon thanks for listening to the jewelry district i'm natalie comet the producer of the podcast If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.